Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning uh, we come to Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 43. This is uh, pretty much uh, the rest of the latter part of Matthew 13. Last week we considered the first part where Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God in parables. So let's read together. This is the word of God. Another parable he put forth to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. God and Father, we pray now that by the Spirit you would bless our consideration of your word, by the Spirit you would open it up, by the Spirit you would take it forth with great power, that you would wash it over us like a great wave, and that you would cause us to understand, cause us to believe, to be mighty in faith, to cause us to be your faithful sons of the kingdom. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, we saw that this is the third major discourse out of five in the book of Matthew, and it concerns the kingdom, and Jesus is teaching throughout this chapter in parables. And we saw last week that a parable to us just means a helpful, illustrative story, but that's not what it means in the Bible. It's a much broader category that includes proverbs and riddles and stories and allegories, all of that. Um, and that what connects parables, the defining characteristic is not the particular form or how long it is. It's the fact that the meaning of the parable lies beneath the surface. You have to work. You have to want to understand. You have to ponder. You have to mull it over. You may have to seek an explanation. You may have to come to Jesus. You may have to come to one of his disciples and say, what does this mean? Even as you see the disciples coming to Jesus. So all the Proverbs of Solomon are really parables within the meaning of the word in the Bible. And so Jesus now is teaching about the kingdom and he is teaching in parables. And we saw last week that Really, the, the kingdom being here, coming in Jesus, it wasn't looking anything like what uh, the disciples were expecting. They're expecting that when Messiah comes, Israel is going to galvanize around the Messiah like one man. And everybody's going to believe and everybody's going to be fired up and everybody's going to be following him and, and so forth. And that's not at all what the disciples are seeing. They're seeing division. They're seeing people uh, uh, be nonchalant about Jesus, don't really care. Uh, they see people opposing him and particularly the leadership. And this will grow without his ministry more and more and more. The leadership will come to oppose Jesus and want to destroy him. And so they see, even looking at God's own people, looking at Israel, they just see really a lot of chaos and opposition and anger and all of these things happening with the presence of the Messiah and the coming of the kingdom. Now, in this second part of Matthew 13, we see it really has the same basic structure of the first part that we looked at last week. Jesus begins with a longer parable, and he ends with an explanation of that longer parable. And then in between, he has explanatory uh, material. In both of them, he cites the Old Testament to explain what he's doing now and to uh, give a bigger picture. Now, this is a, a complex passage. There's a lot going on here, and so we're not going to tackle the whole thing today, uh, mostly because the whole reason why the disciples are expecting, and even Jesus' enemies, are expecting one thing in the kingdom, and it doesn't look like what they're expecting, has to do with their failure to understand their own history, the history of the Israelites from the Old Testament. And what Jesus is really saying to them, what, what the apostles will say later on in the book of Acts and so forth, is, is, is not true, these accusations that are being made against Jesus, that if he's the Messiah, then God is really changing what he promised in the Old Testament. What they're really saying is, no, you don't understand the Old Testament. You don't understand the history of Israel. This is what God has been doing all along. This is where he has been leading all along. And so he's teaching them, he's bringing them to understand the true nature uh, and the true future of the kingdom of God. So 
What we want to do is focus on part of this this week, and then we will finish it next week. So we've got a couple of different aspects, a couple of different viewpoints going on in this passage. One viewpoint is more of a uh, close-up uh, viewpoint, more of a zoom-in viewpoint, focusing uh, on the kingdom in more of a detailed way. And that would be the parable of the tares and the wheat. And, of course, uh, a wheat field that's got all kinds of tares in it would certainly accord with what the disciples are looking around and seeing at that time. But this passage also has a wide-angle view. It's got the big-picture view. So there's one view you get when you're down in the forest on this winding path that's going through the forest, and you're seeing all these trees, but you don't necessarily have a really good idea of where you are. You get more details, but you don't really know where you are. What you need to do is climb up a hill so you can get up, and so you can see out, and you get the idea of the big picture. You know where you are. Or another analogy would be, you know, in the foxhole, war never seems clean. Uh, it's confusing. It's chaotic. It's hard to know what's going on. You can get one idea of the war when you're down in the foxhole. And you're taking lead coming and going. And you may be taking more than you're given. But you get a completely different view if you're able to get up on a mountaintop and look at the whole battlefield and see what's going on. And so one of the things that Jesus is saying, he's going to address the more detailed picture, but he also wants that anchored to this mountaintop view where you see the whole big picture laid out before you. And that's what we want to look at today is the big picture orientation. We want to get up on the mountaintop and see what Jesus is showing us here. So, we know this is about the kingdom, but the first thing we need to notice in terms of big picture is what kingdom is this? Well, it's the kingdom of heaven, of course. Jesus keeps saying the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven like? But he identifies it two other ways uh, in this passage. It is the kingdom of the Father, he says in verse 43. It is the kingdom of the Father. But very significantly, he also identifies it in verse 41 as the kingdom of the Son of Man. Now, we would expect the kingdom of heaven to be the kingdom of the Father, wouldn't we? That kind of goes without saying. That's obvious. But he gives us this other very significant identifier. This kingdom is the kingdom of the Son of Man. When the Son of Man removes the tares... He removes them out of his kingdom. All that offends out of his kingdom. So this is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of the Father, which is also the kingdom of the Son of Man. And that, of course, brings us to the question, who is the Son of Man? Well, first of all, we know that is the title that Jesus took to himself. Other people called him a lot of things. Sometimes they called him the Son of God. They called him sometimes the Christ, the Messiah. They called him Rabbi. Sometimes some people called him Satan, an evildoer, an evil worker. Uh, he was called all kinds of things. But the name he took to himself, that he calls himself more than anything else throughout the Gospels, is this name, Son of Man. 
He calls himself the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, again and again and again. We saw this uh, Matthew 18. He's going to say the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. In the very famous passage in John 3 where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he starts explaining things to him. He says, you remember Nicodemus when Moses lifted up the brazen serpent in the wilderness? The people looked at the serpent would then be healed from the poisonous snakes. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He doesn't say, so must I be lifted up. The Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. In Matthew 12, just the chapter we just covered, remember that uh, Jesus, when the, the Pharisees and scribes asked for a sign, He says, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. And this is how He describes it. As Jonah, was in the three as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And we know, of course, that He's talking there about His death and burial. And in John chapter 6, he tells the astonished crowd, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. So this is the name he takes for himself, the title he takes for himself, and he uses it in very significant ways which are attached to the salvation that he is going to bring about. Now, the Son of Man is something, one of a number of things in this passage that point us to a particular Old Testament book, and that book is the book of Daniel. There are a number of factors here that basically tell us when you get up on the mountaintop and you look out and you see this whole thing laid out before you, if you want to understand it, you see this big mountaintop view, if you want to look at the map and see where you are, that map is the book of Daniel. That's where you get the map. Son of Man is the figure in Daniel chapter 7. And the vision that's given to Daniel is the figure that comes before the Ancient of Days and is given a kingdom. Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So we see why uh, Matthew uh, 13 would refer to the kingdom of the Father, the kingdom of heaven, as the kingdom of the Son of Man, because that is the one to whom the kingdom is given in Daniel chapter 7. Now if you notice... Daniel 7, though, it doesn't say that the Son of Man came before the Ancient of Days. It says one like the Son of Man came before the Ancient of Days. So who is this Son of Man character? Well, if you do a search in the Old Testament, you'll see that occasionally Son of Man is used generically just to refer to a man, a person, a son of Adam, a human being. But where you find it used the most and where you find it used as a title or as a name rather than a generic reference is in the book of Ezekiel. Son of Man was God's name or His title, however you want to view it, for Ezekiel. 
God addresses Ezekiel as son of man over 90 times in the book of Ezekiel. And Jesus calls himself the son of man approximately 80 times in the Gospels. So Jesus here is repeatedly and unmistakably identifying himself both with the Son of Man character in Daniel 7 who received the kingdom and also identifying himself unmistakably with Ezekiel. So we need to ask then, who was Ezekiel? Who was Ezekiel and why would he be the Son of Man? Well, Ezekiel was a contemporary of Daniel. Lived at the same time, he was a young man, same time Daniel was a young man. And this is during the time of the beginning of the Babylonian captivity of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Judah and conquered it and its capital city, Jerusalem. But he didn't destroy them when he initially came there. He didn't destroy Jerusalem, didn't destroy the temple. He made the king of Judah a vassal. He made the king of Judah swear allegiance to him. So there's an oath of fealty. So Nebuchadnezzar becomes the overlord. He becomes the king of kings. He becomes the lord of lords in that sense. And the king of Judah is underneath him. Judah now pays taxes and tribute and so forth to Babylon. Now, as a token of this arrangement, what kings would do back then is they would go to the temple of the people whom they conquered to show that we're more powerful than you and our gods are more powerful than your gods. And the way that they would do that is they would go into the temple of the people and they would take different vessels out. And in the case of the Jerusalem temple, you got all the vessels of gold and silver and so forth. And they will bring those, and Nebuchadnezzar will bring them in and will set them in the temple in Babylon that shows that the God of Israel is less powerful and is, in fact, serving the God of Babylon. Now, later in the book of Daniel, you know at Belshazzar's feast, the famous feast with the handwriting on the wall, how it starts is with Belshazzar calling to go get the vessels that were brought from the temple in Jerusalem and to bring them out and we're going to party. And this is another way of showing not only are we above them and our God above them, but I mean, we're so far above, we're, we're going to, you know, we're going to party with their God's stuff. And so they take the vessels off to go to the temple in Nebuchadnezzar. But the other thing they do is they take human vessels. Because the vessels, you see, stand for people, just like the temple really stands for God's people. And so when they take the vessels of gold and silver, the finest out of the temple, they also take uh, the best of the young men that are in Jerusalem to come and serve Nebuchadnezzar. That's how Daniel and his three friends, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, end up going to Babylon because they're the human vessels that are taken there. This all shows the superiority of Nebuchadnezzar and his gods. Okay, now later on, a few years later, Nebuchadnezzar will go and take some more vessels from Jerusalem, and he will take some more human vessels. So he'll take some more of the young men. And one of those young men is Ezekiel. So Daniel and his friend get taken off the first time. Ezekiel and others get taken off the second time. Now what happens is a few years later, 
is, is, is rebellion and so forth is being fomented in Judah. You remember in Jeremiah, who was the prophet that when all of this is happening, and it's leading up to the Babylonian captivity, he makes it very clear to the people that, look, God's giving you over to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar don't know God's behind this, but I'm telling you. And the reason why nothing you do is going to stand in the way of this is because it's God who's behind this. It's God who's doing this. This is God's judgment on you. So, uh, Jeremiah keeps telling them, number one, to repent, and number two, to submit to the Lord's discipline. And do not revolt against Nebuchadnezzar because you are not going to win. This is the Lord's hand bringing this rod down, and you're not going to stay it. But what they do is, again, this whole spirit, they throw Jeremiah in the prison and down in the dungeon because we don't like what he's saying. You know, get us a different prophet. You got any more prophets? You know, bring us one of them. You know, we want somebody who tells us good news. And they regarded Jeremiah really as a traitor. It's like, here we are, Jeremiah. We're in crisis. We're in crisis mode here. We've got all these foreign policy and national security issues, and then we've got political and economic issues. This is the time when we all need to come together, and here you are just dividing everything up and speaking against us. So they regarded him as a traitor, even as later on they will, in a lot of ways, regard Jesus as a traitor. So it continues to foment, and eventually the king of Jerusalem and the people... They rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. They declare their independence, won't pay tribute anymore, won't, won't do that. Uh, when Jeremiah's been telling them, you better submit, God will be with you. You repent, you honor the Lord, he will be with you in captivity. There will be 70 years of captivity, he will bring you back. Well, the people revolt, and Nebuchadnezzar comes back to Jerusalem. Now, it was for what's really the third time. This time, he says, I've had enough of you. He lays siege against the city. He destroys the city. He destroys the temple. He takes it apart stone by stone. Okay? And at that point, most everybody in the land is taken out, all except for the very, very poorest of the people. They're left in the land. So the whole land is pretty much desolate. And so they take most of the people... And he scatters them throughout the Babylonian Empire among all the nations. And the whole point is, you guys are a bunch of rebels. You don't get to have a city anymore. You don't get to be a people anymore. He's scattering them all out to destroy, uh, to destroy them, really. So the book of Ezekiel is written between the time Ezekiel is taken off into captivity and the time when uh, Judah revolts resulting in the destruction of Jerusalem. And one of uh, Ezekiel's big theme in his book is God is saying, do not revolt. This is the hand of the Lord. This is the hand of the Lord. It is his rod. You better submit to his discipline. If you turn and repent and you understand that it's, it's your wickedness that has brought this about, not the wickedness of Nebuchadnezzar. Is he wicked? Yeah, you bet. Is he a good guy? No, he's not. Is Babylon good? No, they're not. But God wouldn't ever use a more wicked pagan power to punish his own people, would he? Like all the time. Like all the time. So God is more concerned with his own children. His big concern is not how are the pagans behaving. It's how is his own household behaving. 
It's not, oh, do they like me? No, it's do my children love me? That's the issue. And so he's always focused on that. And then the, the, the God's people and his children are always misunderstanding. They're always going, but dad, we're not as bad as the kid down the street. They're worse than we are. They're the bad ones. I mean, you're the mayor of the city. You should be doing something about them, not about us. Well, God is a good mayor, and he says, no, I deal with my own kids first. Judgment always begins with the household of God because I don't have God's platform as a testimony to the world and as a light to the world depends on the testimony of his own children. Otherwise, what he's saying is just like any ruler who's talking to you about how all the kids ought to be behaving while their kids are going crazy, it's a bunch of talk. It's a bunch of talk, and talk is cheap. So it depends on God's people. His own children loving him and bearing the fruit of his fatherhood. And that's why he is focused on them. Okay, so Ezekiel's taken off. He's writing during this period in between the captivity and the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, here's the really interesting thing. Ezekiel was of priestly lineage. Okay, so he's born into the, of the line of Aaron. He's going to become a priest when he turns 30. That's the age that you would enter into the priesthood and start carrying out your duties. Just like Jesus was 30 when he began his ministry. Start noticing the, the connections there. So at age 30 is when the book of Ezekiel starts. Okay, He's 30 when God appears to him in this vision. And God is really calling him into the priesthood and, and Ezekiel really functions like a kind of an ex officio high priest to those who have been carried off in exile already. But here's the really interesting thing. God, he's 30 now, he's coming into the priesthood to minister like high priest to these people. God calls him as a prophet. All right? Calls him as a prophet. Now, normally in the Old Testament, the offices are kept separate. You have priests. You have prophets. God calls each one. But you, it's very unusual to have them be the same person. Ezekiel is one of those exceptions in the, in the Old Testament. Moses was really essentially an exception to that. David was an exception to that. Ezekiel is about one of the only other ones that you can really point to that's an exception to that. Ezekiel is a priest who becomes a prophet. Now, Daniel 7, as we've already said, says one like the Son of Man, one like Ezekiel, who was both a prophet and a priest, came before the Ancient of Days and became the king of the world. So you have this prophet-priest who comes before the Ancient of Days and becomes a king. Okay, that is what we're seeing with one like the Son of Man coming in Daniel 7. And when you think about it, that's basically the story of Jesus. You can sum it up that way. Jesus was a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, was the prophet who was like Moses, who God sent to the people, was a prophet priest who became a king. And not just a king, but the king of kings, the king of the world. And you can see why then he would take that name to himself. And you can see how significant it would be to first century Jews. Because they were very, very into the book of Daniel. It was very popular. 
And the reason why it was so popular, not, not only because it's a cool book, but because the Jews could count. And God had told Jeremiah that the captivity is going to last 70 years. And he told Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 that there were 70 weeks of years, in other words, 490 years appointed for his people and the holy city. And that from the going forth of the command to rebuild Jerusalem, which was issued by Cyrus the Great, the Persian uh, king, because by that time the Medo-Persian Empire had replaced the Babylonian Empire. So he said that from the time of the command to rebuild Jerusalem, there would be 69 weeks of years, in other words, 482 years until the Messiah. And it talks about how the Messiah is going to be cut off i.e. death, but not for himself and all those other things. So the Jews could count. They were into counting. They were into genealogies. They were into all that stuff. And they were counting. And that's why there was very widespread expectation for the Messiah at the time that Jesus was born. Because they can count and they do count. And so Daniel was a very, very popular book at that time. They're expecting the Messiah. They're expecting the kingdom of God. All right. So all of that is pointing us to Daniel, but there's some other things in here that have to do with the big picture that also point us to the book of Daniel. To two short parables of the mustard seed and of the leaven bear strong resemblance to the vision of Daniel 2 concerning the stone that is cut out without hands and which comes and strikes the ancient empires on the foot and over time grows to fill the whole earth. Okay, this is a vision that Nebuchadnezzar has, and he doesn't know what it means. And he threatens to kill all the wise men and the enchanters and the so forth unless they tell him the dream plus its interpretation. They were happy to give him interpretation. But he knows basically like dealing with a bunch of lawyers. They're just going to tell him stuff. And so he says, okay, tell me the dream and tell me the interpretation. And they're going, well, yeah. <laughs> read the contract. You're asking us to do stuff that nobody can, can do. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to kill all you sniveling guys who sit around here eating my food and drinking my wine and wear my fine clothes. I'm going to get rid of every one of you if you don't tell me the dream. And the interpretation, of course, we know Daniel, God gives him the interpretation and he comes and tells him. And he tells him this big statue that Daniel is seeing with a head of gold and the chest and arms of silver and then the midsection is made of bronze and then the legs are made of iron and the feet are iron and clay. He says these, these are four ancient empires. He says, you're the head. So we know where the starting point is. That's the, the empire of Babylon. And then you have another empire coming, and that's the Medo-Persian Empire. They take over. That's what Belshazzar's feast is all about. They conquer Babylon at that time. They got in through the aqueduct. Okay, and then you have the third empire, is of course the Greek Empire of uh, Alexander the Great, which gets divided four ways. And then finally you have the empire of iron, with feet of iron and clay, and that is the Roman Empire. And so he says, these are these four great empires, starting with you, Nebuchadnezzar, but the stone you're seeing is the God of heaven sending his kingdom into the world, which doesn't look near as impressive as this great big 
statue with gold and silver, bronze and iron. You know, it doesn't look, what can a stone do? You might ask Goliath that question. What can a stone do? Okay, so this stone comes in and it's made without hands. It's cut out without hands. Now, that seems like a weird detail, cut out without hands. What does that mean? Well, if you look at that in the Old Testament, when you find stones that are cut out without hands, what you're talking about is the stones that are used for an altar. Because God says, when you make an altar to me, you will put no tool on it. The stones will be as I made them, not as you make them. It's one of the gods saying, you worship me as I say. You don't bring your works to me. Okay? So, anyway, the stone comes. It strikes these empires on the foot. What can a blow to the foot by a small stone do? Well, it does a lot in this vision because these empires begin to crumble. And over time, they turn into chaff and they blow away. But the stone doesn't stay small. It grows. It grows. It becomes a mountain. And it fills the whole earth. And he says the God of heaven is going to establish his kingdom in the earth. And it will be the one that will never end. Okay, so the, the parable of the uh, mustard seed and the parable of the leaven bear a lot of resemblance to that in that they all involve something that begins very small and apparently insignificant but which grows over time to be very large and very significant. In fact, in verse 32 of Matthew 13, where Jesus refers to the mustard seed growing into a great tree, he says, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. This appears to be a quote from Daniel chapter 4, where God gives Nebuchadnezzar another vision. And in that vision, Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom are pictured as a great tree which grows so big and so high that it can be seen from the ends of the earth, and its leaves are lovely, and its fruit is abundant, and the beasts of the field find shade under it, and the birds of heaven dwell in its branches. And Daniel tells him that's a picture of all the different uh, kingdoms and the kingships and the, all, the, all the different people, the economy, the politics, the governmental structure, all being underneath this vast big tree, which is the kingdom of Babylon. So Jesus is quoting that and applying it to the kingdom of heaven. This mustard seed becomes this huge tree. Okay, now a mustard seed became a, became a pretty big plant, but a mustard seed really wouldn't become a tree. But this mustard seed becomes a tree, which is, uh, and, and the birds dwell in its branches just as they did with the great tree that Babylon did. So it's a picture of cultural, political, economic, all of that uh, kind of power and influence of, uh, that involves the kingdom of heaven. So pulling things together in terms of the big picture, what can we conclude and learn about the kingdom of heaven? Well, first of all, the timing. Daniel 2 and 7, as we've already indicated, uh, they show that the kingdom enters the world in the days of the fourth great ancient empire, which was the empire of Rome. What that means is, this is referring to Christ's first advent. That's when Jesus was born, when he ministered, 
when he was crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And you start seeing that this description in Daniel 7 is a description of the ascension of Jesus. It says he's coming on the clouds. And we typically today, we think all oh, that means coming here. Coming on the clouds. He's coming here on the clouds. He's returning to earth. Where is he going in Daniel 7? He's not coming to earth on the clouds. He's coming to the Ancient of Days on the clouds. And he is given uh, this kingdom. So this is the coronation. This is the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father. But just think about the fact Jesus started his ministry, Matthew 3, saying what? The kingdom of heaven is at least 2,000 years away. At least, he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here. It's at hand. What did Jesus just say in Matthew chapter 12 when the Pharisees accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan? Jesus says, look, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom has come upon you. The only question remaining is, did Jesus cast out demons by the Spirit of God? Or something else? I think that's a pretty obvious answer. He's saying, I am at casting out demons by the Spirit of God. The kingdom of God has come upon you. The plundering of Satan's house and the binding of Satan has begun in the life and ministry of Jesus and is going to continue in His disciples. Matthew will conclude this gospel with Jesus right before His ascension saying to His disciples what you would expect from Daniel 7. All authority has been given to Me. Not just in heaven, but on earth. And this is why I'm telling you, go therefore. Don't just go. If you just go, you're not obeying. Go therefore, go for this reason and in this light, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. That sounds like something a king would say. Go therefore, make all the nations my disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all things I have commanded you. Again, that sounds a lot like a king. And he says, I'm with you always. This is going to take a while. It's going to take a while. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So that's what we see about the timing. It's referring to the first advent of Christ, not the second advent when he comes back, which the Bible uh, clearly teaches. The return of Jesus and the final uh, judgment. What does it teach us about the beginning of the kingdom? Well, it teaches us that the kingdom begins not with a bunch of trumpet fanfare in an impressive way. It begins very small. It begins apparently weak and insignificant. This small stone, this mustard seed, this little pinch of leaven, what can they do? What can they do? What threat are they to the kingdom of man? Well, no threat whatsoever, you would think. It began small, apparently weak and insignificant. Think to whom Jesus is speaking when he says, All authority has been given to me, and you go therefore, and all those nations out there, 
You know Rome? You know all those nations? You know all those kings? You make them my disciples. All of them. The nations. Not just people. The nations. You baptize them. You bring them to faith. You bring them to conversion. You teach them to do all that I have said. He's talking to a ragtag group of former fishermen and people like that. You look at it and you go, right. Right. Uh-huh. Well, that's like the little stone. That's like the mustard seed. That's like the pinch of leaven. That's exactly how the kingdom starts. What do we learn about the progress of the kingdom? Well, we learn that it's gradual over time. The kingdom of God does not land like the 82nd Airborne Division. We're in charge. We're in control. That's not the way it happens. It's very gradual over time that it progresses and grows. What do we learn about the destiny of the kingdom? Well, we learn that its destiny is worldwide dominance. In other words, it does away effectively with the kingdom of man. Because remember, in the first vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, which is the statue of gold, silver, bronze, and steel, and so forth, all four ancient empires comprise one big man, one big empire of man. Because I can tell you, if you were living back then, if you could live long enough to be under all four, you wouldn't see a whole lot of difference. It would just be like, okay, do you want to live under... Hitler or Stalin or Mao Zedong? Pick. It's up to you. Free to choose. It doesn't matter a lot. You change a few things, you change the language, whatever, to the people living under it, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. They're all the same. It's all the empire of man. It's all the empire of tyranny. It's all the empire of man playing God and wanting to be God. And that always leads in the same way. You know, it doesn't matter if you call it fascism, Nazism, communism. It doesn't matter whether you call it anarchy. You can go, you can go to the right and to totalitarian direction. You can go to the other way, to an anarchistic, atomistic type direction. It doesn't matter. It's all the same. It's man playing God. It's hell on earth. That's what it is. And that is what the kingdom of God brings to an end effectively over time. How does it do this? We said it dominates, worldwide domination. How does it dominate? We see that it doesn't dominate the way the empires of man dominate, which is at the point of the spear or gun or by other means of coercion and so forth. It dominates by transformation. And that's the significance of the leaven. This lady puts it into several measures of meal. Now, by ancient standard, that will make enough bread to feed a small village. This is not a single recipe of cookies. This is not a double recipe of cookies. This is cookies for the whole town. Okay? And it doesn't, the leaven doesn't come in. Number one, it's very small. What can a little leaven do? Well, the difference between the leaven and the rest of the ingredients is the leaven is alive, you see. It's alive, and it's going to grow, and it's going to spread, and it's going to go through everything, and it's going to transform it all. The leaven doesn't come in and cook and then kick out all the chocolate chips. That's not the way it takes over. 
It comes in and it makes everything alive. It changes everything. It lifts it up. It makes it rise. It makes it alive. And that's what the kingdom of heaven does. It's not a military regime imposed on an unwilling world. It's a kingdom that converts people so that they willingly honor Jesus as Lord. It changes them. And one of the pictures of that in Daniel, the center of the book, is the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar, where he comes to confess. He humbles and confesses the God of heaven. So we see this is what the kingdom of God is about. Well, how does this affect us then? Well, this undermined this whole picture of the kingdom, which goes back into the Old Testament, and which Jesus is articulating now, it effectively completely cut across and undermined the views of the kingdom in Jesus' day, the dominant views. And it does the same thing to the dominant views of the kingdom in the church today. Because there's still, there was a lot of confusion about the kingdom then, and not much has changed in 2,000 years. There's a lot of confusion about the kingdom now. You know, in, in earlier in chapter 13, Jesus said to his disciples, to you it has been given to, to understand the, the mysteries of the kingdom, about the kingdom. You would think that Jesus had said, to you it has been given to be perpetually confused about the kingdom and to understand nothing about it and to fight about it all the time. Because after 2,000 years, that's basically what we still have. It's interesting that the Jews' misconception about the kingdom in that day, the dominant ones, and the one we have today are pretty much the same. What was the dominant view of the kingdom back then uh, of serious, you know, conservative uh, Israelites, the evangelicals of the day? The view of it was that it was essentially, it was an ethnic kingdom, a Jewish ethnic kingdom where the Jews are in charge. And then instead of being on the bottom and Rome on top, Israel becomes on top, everybody else becomes on the bottom, and it's essentially a military regime. It's a conquest like that, and other people are put under and put down like that. And when you think about the dominant view of the kingdom today, what is it? It's going to be a Jewish ethnic military regime essentially over an unwilling world. That is the dominant view in the evangelical church. That was the dominant view then. How is it that we think today that we have the right view of the kingdom by agreeing with Jesus' opponents? How do we do that? How do we work that out? We're agreeing with them. That's exactly what they believed. Jesus is setting all of that aside. He said, you don't understand it. That's not what it's about. That's not what it's going to be like. Okay? And when we understand that it begins so weak and insignificant seeming, but by the power of God, it's like, don't look at that leaven. Don't look at that leaven. Don't look at that mustard seed or that little rock, that little stone, and form an opinion about this. You better look at the God that's behind the leaven you better look at the living God that's behind that mustard seed and behind that stone. Because it's not by the power of those pitiful disciples that's going to make this happen. It's the power of the living God who has sworn that by His zeal, this will happen. This will happen there. 
The Bible is full of the story of God answering His promises in ways that far exceed what His people ever thought, and yet in ways which they did not expect. And that is exactly what we see in the kingdom. Now what does this do for us when we have this view of the kingdom as opposed to the dominant view today? Now I've mentioned the dominant view, essentially Israel, ethnic, uh, military regime, and so forth, which comes, boom, over the world at the second advent of Christ, which is different than the picture Jesus has given. The second biggest alternative is that, well, the kingdom of God came with Jesus, but it only applies to part of life. It only applies to the church. It doesn't apply out there to the world. It's limited in time. It's off in the future. It's limited in its reach. It doesn't really convert people. It's just imposed over them. Or it's limited in its scope. It's just to the church. It's just to the hearts of believers. It's in my heart. It's in here. Well, yeah, it is. But that's not the only place where it is. Because remember, the thing about leaven is it does not behave. It doesn't stay where you put it. So you take this whole big lump of dough and you stick the leaven way over here in the corner. And you say, I'm going away now. I'm going to go to bed. I want you to behave yourself. You stay right there. It's not going to stay there. It's going to go through the whole thing. And so we limit it in these different ways, and that's not what Jesus does. When we understand what he's saying and when we recover this, and this, by the way, is what... The Puritans and the pilgrims believed who came to these shores originally. This was their view of the kingdom, the one that Jesus presents. Okay, That's why they had this sense of here and now. There's a here and now-ness to the kingdom. It's relevant right now, not someday in the future, not just in my heart, not just in the church. Everywhere. Everything. There's a here and now-ness. There's an all-encompassingness to it. Life is not split in two. Life is not dichotomized or truncated between spiritual and secular, spiritual and non-spiritual. You see that rampant in our culture today, where our culture says you're not allowed to talk about certain things of this faith you have about Jesus and so forth in the public square. You can talk about it in yourself. You know, you can talk about it in your home. You can talk about it in church. And if we continue like we are, the space where we can talk about it is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller to where you can think it in your head as long as you don't show it in your face. That'll be where it'll end, unless God has mercy. And so we're all divided up. Now, where do you think our culture got this idea that there are certain things out here, there's truth out here, there's subjective truth, that belongs in the public square, but your faith and your religious truth, that's subjective And it doesn't belong in the public square. It belongs off in your private space. Where do you think they got that? From us. From 150 years of the evangelical church telling our culture that. That is where they got it. And they have learned their lesson well. And they're saying their catechism back to us. We end up with this truncated life. Well, to our forefathers who came to these shores, life wasn't truncated. 
It all belonged to Jesus. Everything belonged to Jesus. There was no spiritual versus secular. God is the God. He's the God of uh, He's the God of religion. He's the God of the inner person. He's the God of sex. He's the God of money. He's the God of power. He's the God of government. The God of economics. He's the God of culture and art and music. He's the God of everything because every good thing He made very good. That's why it's here. And He's the Lord of all. And He's the King of all. And so for them, winning souls, sending missionaries, and founding nations was all of a piece. It's all part of the same thing. There's no division between them. They're not set apart. They're not pitted against one another. And it's what gave them their sunny optimism, a godly optimism in the face of persecution and great hardship. You think about what they went through to just come to these shores. Unbelievable. But they had this spring in their step, this sunny view that Jesus has always won. And so you might as well come along quietly because he's already won. That's already decided. The great D-Day already happened. We're just here to mop up. It's done. And that's why they had such perseverance and sunny optimism, a spring in their step in the midst of great hardship and persecution. One of the things we see from this is, is that the church is always key. The church, the people of God, are always key. You think from looking in the news, the United States, the government, the Congress, the Supreme Court, the President, the Middle East, Europe, all this stuff going on, you think, okay, well, that's the big dog. You know, we're just the little tail down here. You know, what do we count? God's people are always the key. God's people are, by definition, the most powerful people in the world. It doesn't depend on what we can do. It depends on what Christ has decided to do and His power. That's what it depends on. As we go, so goes the world. The key is not our numbers, it's not our resources, it's not our political clout. It's the living God who is our King. And the number one thing to Christ, who rules over us in all things, again, by what does He decide to show His power? It says in Second Chronicles, He looks throughout the whole earth all the time for opportunities to show His power. We think He's gone away. We think He's receded from the earth. We don't think He's doing that anymore. Well, that's the same thing His people thought again and again and again. They came to the land of Canaan. Where's the God who split the Red Sea now? Oh, we don't know. He's gone. We can't do this. Can't do it. We've looked. Look, open your eyes here. Wake up and smell the coffee. Have you seen them? Have you seen us? There are seven nations there. They're bigger. The giants are in the land. We can't do this. Complicated eschatology here. Very complicated eschatology. The God who divided the Red Sea, destroyed Pharaoh's army. We don't know where he's gone, but he's not doing that kind of thing anymore. And we'll give you the complicated theological reason. God had another word for that. It's called unbelief. And he refused to show his power in the face of unbelief. He's looking for opportunities to share his power, but it's not based on whether the world likes him. It's based on whether his own people love him. And the first part of that is that we actually acknowledge and confess that he is the Lord. He is the Lord. That's where it starts. We understand that. 
we believe that, we don't look out. It's like, have you looked lately? Have you seen the headlines? Have you looked out? It's like, yeah. Have you ever seen a mustard seed? Have you ever seen leaven? That's the whole point. You can't judge it based on what you're seeing. The Bible calls that living by sight as opposed to living by faith. And we're so tempted always to take what God has told us and then to look out. And when we see something different, just like what the disciples were doing, we want to change what God has told us to fit what we see. And God keeps telling us again and again, no, don't worry about what you see. Listen to me. Listen to me. Believe me. Cling to me. Honor me as Lord. I think it's the number one need of the church today is to recover the Lordship of Christ, not just in a nominal sense. Every Christian will say he's Lord of Lord, Kings of Kings. is like, what does that mean? We say Lord of Lord, King of Kings. We quote the Great Commission, and then we have a bunch of footnotes. And then you drop down to the bottom of the page, you see all our heavy theology that explains that essentially what that means is, yes, Lord of Lord, Kings of Kings, but not here, not now. That's what all our footnotes add up to mean. Well, God in the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ, always takes that personally. He takes that as a personal insult. This was in the desert. Where is God? Is He with us? Can He provide for us? Can He feed us? Can He give us water? God takes that personally. It's a slap in His face. And I think the biggest need of the church today is to recover the understanding of Christ's current lordship and kingship, to acknowledge Him and embrace Him in that way, to start worshiping Him in that way, praying to Him in that way, and to see that He is claiming everything. There's not one square inch, one theologian said, of the universe for which Jesus does not say, Mine. Mine. And that we have to recover. Loving Jesus, loving one another, everything falls underneath that. Our forefathers with far less numbers and resources were blessed in a way that we aren't because they honored Jesus as Lord in a way that we don't. So what do we do with this? First of all, we pray. We pray like Daniel. We don't just confess our sins. We don't just say, Lord God, I understand all this. I got it all correct. But all those other Christians out there, they're all messed up. No. We're, we are they, they are us. We're all together. We're all together. We confess our collective sins. We confess the sins of our fathers. We confess this failure to embrace Him and show His Lordship. And we pray that He will grant revival and reformation in His own people, His church, to turn back to Him in this way. We worship Him as the present King and Lord. We live that way. We don't carve out parts of our life where He doesn't really apply. We see Him as the Lord of everything. And we share. We share this. Um, we share this with other Christians in a winsome way. In a winsome way, not in a combative way. Because let me tell you, when I first became a Christian, I didn't believe this. <laughs> I was taught and I believed what the dominant view is today. The first book I read as a Christian, brand new Christian, 17, late great planet Earth. There I was in my backyard going, whoa, <laughs> reading all this stuff. So there us, we're them. We share these things in a winsome and a loving way. 
And I think one of the best ways to do that, one of the best segues into this that's non-threatening, that can show a common ground and open people up, is to point out that our forefathers who gave us the Christian heritage that we have, that all Christians want to believe in, you know they had a different view of the kingdom of God than we do. Our view today, that wasn't their view. I think that's a very good entry point. So I leave these things with you now, and I pray that you will take them to heart. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.